Well, good. Well, good to have everybody again tonight and to get Mike and Phil up here. seems like, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever done so many Q&As in your lives, uh, but uh, even from Friday, it seems like, you know, a year has transpired since the last Q&A with everything that's going on and, and, and Sunday's message by Pastor John and, and uh, articles and blogs and comments that have uh, gone out even since just yesterday. It's hard to believe it was just yesterday. Indeed. I, I, I've known John MacArthur for 40 years, and I just learned yesterday that he likes Fresca. <laughs> I, I had no idea. Yeah. And people always ask me, do you agree with John on everything? Would you ever express public disagreement with John MacArthur? And the answer is yes. I think Fresca <laughs> is about the worst soft drink you could drink. <laughs> So we disagree on that. My kids were looking at me like, what is Fresca? Yeah. Like, what is that? What is he even talking about? My grandkids said the same thing. And, uh, and they, so on the way home from church, they were like, can we stop at the, at the 7-Eleven, see if they have any Fresca? I want to try it. I said, no, you don't. It's lousy. <laughs> yeah. John like, is going to have Fresca enough until he goes fact, to heaven. There was I mean, a huge two-liter bottle of Fresca on his desk at Grace to You this yeah. morning. So, well, we saw the meme that went out right this morning that said Governor Newsom said, "What? Uh, I'm closing all of the churches." And then it was John's picture that just says, "Hand me a Fresca." Hold my Fresca. No, hold, hold my, my Fresca. Hold my Fresca. That's my, right. hold my Fresca. My favorite was the one. Uh, it's just a picture of John preaching, and it says. I came here to defy tyrants and drink Fresca, and I'm all out of Fresca. <laughs> that was so perfect. The internet is an amazing thing sometimes. Yeah. There, there's a lot of clever people. Uh, if they put all of that energy toward other things, we'd probably accomplish a lot. But uh, Anyway. Well, I don't see anybody standing up yet, but uh, that might give me the opportunity. I did want to... Um, and, and I'll just start with it tonight to kind of get things going. Um, obviously, in light of Pastor John's message yesterday, things were written, uh, comments were done. But one of the ones that I think a lot of people were talking about today uh, was a blog that was put out by Jonathan Lehman from Nine Marks Ministry. Uh, that's Mark Dever's ministry in Washington, D.C. And I think Jonathan's there in Washington, D.C. Um, but anyway, he put out an article that was titled... A time for civil disobedience, question mark, a response to Grace Community Church's elders. And uh, he had a number of points that were in there, but one of the ones I wanted to focus on, because I don't want to just go through his, his post and, and what all he said, but I think one of the things that I even heard today, even from friends of mine, and especially those that are even Grace Community Church members, you know, one of the, the points he made in here was... Um, uh, let's see. He said, I respect the decision of the Grace Community Elders, goes on, and he says, but if they feel bound of conscience to gather their church, then they should gather. He says, yet, I'd also like to add, civil disobedience may not be the only legitimate or moral course of action at this moment. And kind of goes on to make the point like there are other moral uh, options right now, like meeting in this tent, like meeting outdoors, uh, social distancing, you know, wearing masks, things like that, where maybe we wouldn't have to be necessarily disobedient to the government. And somebody even today at work asked me, well, how should I, as a Grace Church member, even deal with or, or, or feel about the thing where I want to submit to my elders, 
and this is the statement now that our elders have put out. At the same time, I'm still struggling with the idea of Romans 13, obeying the authorities over me. I do see that maybe there are some other options available with outdoor seating, things like that. What do I, how, how do I reconcile that? Should I, should I obey my, uh, you know, which one kind of takes precedence is what this person had asked me. And, and should I feel bad if I haven't come back to church yet um, because of my thinking through Romans 13? Am I in sin? So Real that, fast, how many, how many of you guys read Lehman's article? Quite a few. Okay. Yeah. That, that question actually is one we've dealt with numerous times in these Q&As while we've been on the quarantine. But I'll say again, um, obviously the, the thing you must do is obey your conscience. We would never counsel anybody to violate his or her own conscience. And we've also said all along, this is not a, a simple issue. The statement that was issued this week uh, took the elders uh, quite a long time to draft and quite a lot of discussion to, uh, to finally agree on. Uh, so we acknowledge it's not a it's not a it, it's not the sort of issue that's obvious. Like thou shalt not steal. Should I break into this jewelry store and get me a watch? The answer to that's obvious. This is a little more complex. We would admit that, and uh, and there are, I think, for some churches, uh, alternatives that n- may not may not involve um, you know defying some government order, depending on what state you live in, where you live, uh, how many people are in your church. Uh, I I know of a church in Montana, for example, that never closed, and they've been boasting about this as if they're really courageous. The problem is nobody in Montana cares about that, and there's only about a hundred of them anyway. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's not as big a deal for them and not as difficult for us with 50 elders uh, who who all have their own consciences to deal with. We have two elders who are judges, two elders who are attorneys, two elders who are doctors, and they obviously have uh, concerns and opinions about this that are sort of flavored by their work as well. And uh, it wasn't easy for the elders to to you know come to this position, but the statement you know does state, I think, very clearly what our position is including the fact that we believe, and in fact, this is really the heart of the argument, we believe that it is the role of the elders of a church to determine what to do in a situation like this. And uh, that means the government doesn't really have the right to dictate to us about that, but also means that we as elders don't have any right to dictate to other churches what they ought to do. And we don't certainly don't have, and never have had the right as elders of this church to dictate to people uh, any order that that mandates that they violate their own conscience. So if you want to practice social distancing, if, if you even want to stay home and watch the, the live stream, you feel conscience-bound to do that, nobody's going to condemn you for that. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that the statement reflects what we think is the right conclusion to all these dilemmas. We do hope other churches will follow the path we're pointing out, but we're not going to sit in judgment on those who, who make their own decision because the heart of that statement is uh, uh, our conviction that it's, it's an individual church's own elders who have the duty to decide what they're going to do there. So. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, though we would, would never counsel anybody to do anything against their conscience, like Phil said, so if you think that you are violating 
the governing authorities a la Romans 13 by coming, then you shouldn't come because that your conscience is informing you that you're sinning by coming. But what we're trying to do for you, first of all, but also for others and in other churches, is to inform their consciences biblically. And the argument is that, okay, so a governing authority has issued a command, uh, and it's, you know, you cannot meet indoors, or you must keep six feet apart, or you must wear a mask, or whatever the orders are, right? Now, the question is, am I, am I bound by Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 to obey those orders? Well, we, we already recognize that the, uh, the authority of the civil government is not absolute. I think we all recognize that when we, we have a passage in chapter, Acts chapter 4 and 5, which says, look, whether it be right in the sight of you to, to pay heed to you rather than to God, whether it's right in the sight of God to pay heed to him or you, you know, you be the judge, but as for us, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And then in Acts 5, uh, we must obey God rather than men. So there is a, a limit to civil authority. The question is, is this a situation in which those limitations have been reached? One limit to civil authority is when they ask us to do something that is sinful or when they prohibit us from doing something that we are commanded to do. That, and, and, and this, you know, very clear situation like that, then it's we obey God rather than men. What we're also trying to teach you is that there is another scenario in which uh, civil authority is not binding. And that is when they seek to exercise authority that they have not been given by God. Okay? So, Romans 13, everybody, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So, if God establishes authorities, then he establishes authorities with certain limitations to their authority. And we recognize that in the other institutions that God has ordained. If the powers that be are ordained of God, so also is the church ordained of God. I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Uh, So also is the family. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the family, the church, and the state are all authorities ordained by God, but they don't all have authority over each other. They have the spheres of authority that God has entrusted to them. I'm a father, but I'm the father of of my children, not yours. So I I might observe your child breaking, you know, a commandment that you've given him, but it's not within my prerogative to administer discipline to that child. Uh, That's not the authority that God has given me as a father of my own kids. So also as an elder... Uh, I have authority, ecclesiastical authority over you uh, as with respect to uh, spiritual matters, but I, I don't have a, a spiritual authority over a member of another church. And even my, my spiritual authority, our spiritual authority over you doesn't extend to uh, wear this color shirt or buy this car or, or you know, matters that are free for your own conscience to make. Uh, still further, as a father, as a church elder, I have no authority uh, in the state. I don't get to go to the state legislature and say, um, this person over here blasphemed the name of Christ. You're ordained of God. Punish that person with, imp- with jail time for blasphemy. That's an encroachment of ecclesiastical authority upon the state, which has happened 
quite often in history. I mean, that was the practice of the Roman church from uh, about 500 AD, you know, through to the the post-Reformation time. Uh, So God has established authorities, but he's established those authorities with spheres of jurisdiction. And the state has uh, its own jurisdiction over civil matters. It doesn't have its jurisdiction over ecclesiastical matters. When the state says you can worship if, when the state says you can, ha- you can gather together in groups only this much or, or uh, you, can, you, you, well, you shouldn't sing and, and things like that, uh, they're going over their sphere of authority. They're exceeding their sphere of authority just as much as if I was telling the state to punish blasphemers or if I was trying to spank your children. It's, it's a breach of the God-given civil authority. And so, when God has not given that authority, we cannot be bound by Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 to obey that authority. Because there is no authority except from God, and that means if God didn't give that authority, it is no real authority. Yeah, one other thing, too. On the other side of the conscience issue, and what has been a, an increasing burden on my heart as the as the quarantine has dragged on, you remember at the beginning it was 15 days to flatten the curve and then it turned into 30 days. Now it's been five months. And the burden on my heart is for the conscience of those people who feel uh, the weight of, of Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. How long do we have to stay out before we violated that command? And when the governor is saying, not only don't sing, but uh, we're going to impose even stricter, uh, reimpose the closure of churches, basically, and and that's indefinite. There's no end in sight. Uh, they've stepped over the line, and uh, that I think it was the the governor's order uh, to make this church closure indefinite that really pushed me over the edge. Where I said, no, they they have crossed the line, but. This goes back to the very beginning. From the beginning, as elders, we said, look, we don't know the seriousness of the, the threat from this virus. The model at that time that was being accepted by all the scientists and doctors uh, turned out to be totally wrong. And even the guy that made the model admitted that he was wrong and had to step down from his role in the British government. Uh, and he had predicted millions, more than two million deaths from the COVID virus, and after we got maybe two, three months into it, they said, no, oh, sorry, that, that model was wrong. It's not going to be that bad. But none of the restrictions have been lifted. So what we're, what we're suffering now is based on a faulty model from the start, and yet you don't see anybody sort of backing off. And, and uh, uh, I, I, just, I can't justify in my own mind continuing to to follow the recommendations that we close the church over uh, an illness that actually hasn't proved that deadly for the congregation of Grace Church. We had our shepherds conference when the, uh, the virus was in its first worst week when the most people died in New York, and uh, that, that didn't result in any catastrophe. We've been gathering here at Grace Church for four or five weeks prior to the release of the elders' statement. The statement actually explains why we've been doing what we've been doing, and uh, there hasn't been any fresh outbreak of the virus. So uh, I I just don't see 
any any factors that uh, that should lift us to that level of fear where we say, I can't even come to church because I'm afraid people are going to die if I do. One other follow-up maybe on that, because this is one of the other things I wanted to ask. Also in this same, uh, same blog that Nine Marks put out, they went along with that too, and they said, what's implied in MacArthur's statement is that his elders don't believe there's a real threat with COVID-19. Again, that is a judgment call they're allowed to make, and that judgment call presumably stands behind their subsequent judgment call to disobey the, the government. Yeah, let me be clear. Uh, we do think there's a real threat. We just question whether it's serious enough to justify the closure of the church. Uh, in fact, I just made a tweet pointing out that our nursery, and not only our nursery, but every church nursery I've ever known, has for generations been a petri dish of disease. And that hasn't kept most parents from coming to church. That's not enough to dissuade me from joining the Fellowship of the Saints, the fact that I might be exposed to the flu. And, and some of the flus have been potentially fatal as well. One of, the, one of the deep concerns I have about what we're doing right now and the fact that so many rank-and-file people have gotten on board to the point where they, they parrot every fear-mongering statement they hear on the news one of my fears is that what this is going to result in is every year in flu season, we're going to face another quarantine. And uh, I think if we don't stop it now, if we don't take a stand now and say, no, we're not going to blindly submit to this, uh, then we're going to face this again and again and again in the future to come. What we're saying to the government by doing that would be, we do think you have authority to tell us whether we can meet or not. Yeah. And I'm, I'm troubled by that comment in Lehman's, in Lehman's post. What's implied in the statement is that we don't believe it's a real threat. I mean, that's, that's nowhere implied there. And I, I participated in the drafting of that and editing of that statement with, without the least hint of that supposition, that it's not a real threat. Now, Lehman may define a real threat differently than I do. I mean, he, earlier in the article, likens it to World War II bombings on coastal areas which needed to, to be blacked out. So the government says, hey, uh, close down your churches in the evening so that there aren't lights on, so that the, bo- the German bombers don't know where the, where the land is to, to drop their bombs. Um, and, and yes, if you think that this scenario is akin to bombing in war, then I suppose we have different definitions of a real threat. I think it's a real threat. I think people are getting sick. I think that people are having significant complications. Uh, you know, a very small percentage of people, thank God, um, but real complications. And, and a very small percentage of people are actually, uh, you know, contracting this. And, and according, to the, according to the reporting, which has not proven itself to be uh, immaculate by any sense, um, many people have died with this uh, disease. So, so yes, that's, that's a real threat. By any definition, that's a real threat. But... Uh, the notion that it's appropriate to compare it to being at war when there are actually bombs falling from the sky that could kill you and, and crush you and destroy. I, I mean, that's just to me, that's just weird. It's, I think it's just over the top. And, and, and you know, I, I suppose the media and, and, you know, I suppose the media has treated this with that kind of, you know, terror uh, to lead people to believe that. But I just feel so bad for anybody who thinks that way. You know, you're you're being you're being misled and and uh, I think manipulated by uh, a, a media that desires to keep you fearful 
and uh, to, to, to keep you terrorized, um, I, I just don't think that we're anywhere, the numbers do not bear out that we're anywhere remotely near a comparison with active bombings. And famously, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in the middle of those bombings. Uh, he kept preaching while the bombs were falling, uh, number one. And number two, it, it's, an, it's, it's another thing to say, look, well, when do churches meet for worship? They meet Sunday morning. Uh, where, where it's not dark out, <laughs> where, you know, the lights are not going to signal to, to German bombers that there are, there's land. So I can't imagine any church saying, no, 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 we have, we, though we were at church on Sunday morning, on Sunday evening, uh, we're commanded by Christ to worship. And if we don't gather on Sunday evening as well, we're in disobedience for failing to assemble. No, 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 you, you assembled that morning. And, and so the comparison to me was just all kinds of apples and oranges and, uh, and it makes me suspicious of, you know, it being a position in search of an argument uh, rather than an argument leading its way to a position. And, and I also have the suspicion, I want to say this about this article, that, um, that many people who are sharing it, because that by, is not by far the only concern that I have with the, the merits of that article, people sharing that article and pointing to that article as if it's a, a sort of a, a gotcha response to what we've presented – I, I fear that those are people who simply disagree with the decision we've made and are looking for something to, to, to prop up their disagreement because I don't find that, that argumentation compelling in the least. Now, I think we have to guard against confirmation bias uh, in, in, you know, hey, this person gives a semi-coherent, literate, you know, uh, response to uh, the position that I disagree with. So here I go. I think this is a great post. You need to fight that, in, that uh, inclination in your own heart if it's there. Yeah. In fact, I had a series of uh, exchanges today with Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman, and uh, they, they ultimately said, look, there's not anything in the article per se that they disagree with. It's the implication that if you don't march lockstep with what we're doing, we condemn you. And and it seems to me that it's clear enough in the document itself that that's not the position we're taking. So I'm left with wondering, even after discussing it with them, I'm left with wondering what is it they actually wanted to say in that article. It's, it's not clear. And ironically, if you ask them, just sum it up, that would be their criticism of our statement. They would say it's not clear to them. So, you know, apparently we're not, uh, we're not clear enough to each other, but... It seems to me that enough people have clearly understood the elders' statement that uh, I'm not inclined to go back and make any revisions and to I it. I think that's the same thing at work. I think, I think that, you know, they're inclined not to meet. They're inclined to give a defense for why they're not meeting and, in Lehman's case, why he is protesting, you know, at sort yeah, of that's famous D.C. Well, protests. An important thing we ought to say, I think, is that Jonathan Lehman, who wrote that article just a few weeks ago was leading his church in a Black Lives Matter-themed protest on a Sunday morning. They were, you know, masked and trying to socially distance, but uh, nevertheless, he was fine with that, and, uh, and yet somehow troubled by the fact that our elders decided we're going to meet despite the governor's orders. And so if you're doing that, you know, it's in, it's in the interest of your own position to, to find something not of substance but of tone or not in, in you know, actual words but what the statement does or whatever else, uh, you know, it, it behooves somebody who holds that position to, to find something wrong. 
And, and I think that reading an implication where there, is, there was not one, uh, you know, reading things into the article that were not there, uh, I think is one way you can dismiss a strong biblical case for the headship of Christ over his church and the, the, uh, the sovereignty that he, he exerts over the church to the exclusion of Caesar. And so, I mean, I, I'm not one to accuse motives, but it seemed, it seemed very clear to me that that was a position in search of an argument. And uh, I didn't find it convincing in the least. Yeah, it was kind of reminiscent of uh, Tim Keller's comments about the social justice statement where he said, I agree with everything it says. It's what I read between the lines that troubles me. Right. I mean, he pretty much, that was his critique. And uh, that's, I think, what the uh, Nine Marks criticism boils down to as well. Good. Well, thank you, guys. I know there was a lot of discussion around that today, so that's good. Yeah, is that Hansel? It's hard to see with this light. Sorry. It's me. Uh, asking for a friend, uh, based on 2 Kings five eighteen and 19, uh, that's with Naaman and Elisha and the uh, two mule loads of earth and worshiping. Is it a sin for us to bow down to other gods, idols, people, dead ancestors, at their tombs or memorial tablet under the pressure from other family members, but with our heart only worshiping God? And how does that apply to early Chinese missionaries bowing down to Chinese emperors? And what I chapters again? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5. And then the two key verses are 18 and 19. Second, Second King. Kings, I'm sorry. Second Kings 5. So Na- Naaman said, okay, okay. So when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, behold, now I, I know that there is no God on all the earth but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer burn offering, uh, offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace, so he departed from him some distance. So since Naaman asks the man of God to pardon him when he must go into uh, the house of the God of his master and bows in the presence of that place before that false God, since the man of God tells him to go in peace, it seems that he's granted his request to say, I'm not really worshiping but I'm doing it because my master requires me to do it. Is this basically the argument? Yeah. And then the question is, is it basically their question is, is it a sin for us to do the same? Do other, yeah, do the same thing. All right, Phil, I figured out the question. You've got to give the answer. <laughs> and what was your point about missionaries in China? Yeah, it was, it was really two questions. The second one was, how does that apply to early Chinese missionaries bowing down to Chinese emperors? Yeah, I mean, I, so I don't, I don't know exactly what the rituals were or the customs were about a slave who, you know, is bound, you know, to accompany his master into his idolatry. 
I think when you're a slave um, whose master is worshiping idols and you sort of have to carry his golf clubs around, uh, you know, you, kind of, you go where he goes. Um, I just don't think that there's any world in which that applies. I think that uh, missionaries trying to to bow, missionaries capitulating by bowing down to Chinese emperors is a, is a little bit of a different thing. You can you can bow out of respect to somebody as a greeting, right, without there being overtones of worship. If you're bowing in order to, to do obeisance, you know, or or to venerate or to worship a, a ruler, then uh, you know you're you're guilty of breaking the first and second commandments in my mind. At least the first commandment, you know, you don't worship anyone uh, but Yahweh. Uh, if missionaries did that because it was easier, I would say that that's capitulating. If they did it because they're trying to be all things to all people, that's a misunderstanding of First Corinthians nine. Um, if you're a slave, you know, and your master demands that you do something, uh, if it was me, I'd probably still say no, sorry, and and you know, because I'm a slave to God, to Christ. Um, but I think that really would be the only comparable application. I'll give you the canonical answer. Good. This is from the MacArthur Study Bible. The, the expression, go in peace, is a amphibologia, or has a double meaning. It's a word or a phrase that is ambiguous. It's, success, it's, it's uh, susceptible to two interpretations. And uh, MacArthur says, the answer Elisha gave was an amphilog- amphibologia, uh, as if he had said, or, or rather, he says... If, if he had simply said, yes, you may bow, that would have been to sanction idolatry. But if he had said, you know, you must not bow, that would have been to put Naaman's conscience under a yoke of bondage to Elisha. Uh, so he's giving him an ambiguous answer. He doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He just says, go in peace, and, uh, re- and declines to answer. That's how MacArthur interprets it. And that, I mean, I haven't studied that passage intently. I'd want to look that up in five or six commentaries before I stood up and taught on it. But that sounds like a reasonable answer to me. Uh, if, it, if it sanctioned bowing to someone other than God and, and uh, expressing worship, it would be the only place in Scripture where you could find that is justified. Everywhere else, it's clearly condemned. And since it is so widely and resoundingly condemned in Scripture, there's no way I would interpret that passage as giving us permission to commit an act of idolatry with a clear conscience when Scripture clearly tells us many times not to do that. Yeah, it's a good example of not making doctrine on the more obscure passage when there is an exceptionally clear passage that says, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. Yeah, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's like yeah. the first of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. Now, was that because of something now or just because you were studying through that book? Yeah, and... no, he's asking that because people have used that. I've seen this online. People are using that argument to say uh, it, it, it's okay to follow the government dictate uh, if you, if you in your heart are standing up. If the government says bow, you can bow, but in your heart you're standing up. That would negate everything you read in the book of Daniel about Daniel's courage and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and pretty much everything else in Scripture where people refuse to bow to idols. It's, it's, it seems to me to, such a, uh, to be such a fallacious 
argument. I haven't really bothered to look into that passage and answer it definitively, but now maybe I will. So people are making the argument on that text in this yeah. context? To is say, that where yeah, you've I'm, heard it, I'm in, my, I'm, I'm, I'm in my church in my heart? Yeah, is that why you brought it up? I'm just asking for a friend. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but did your friend ask it in that context? I, the, the question was worshiping idols, ancestors, so on perhaps from pressure from family, but in my heart, I'm worshiping God. Yeah, I think yeah. that, that might okay. have had to so, be more of the family thing. I'll tell you, personally, my wife grew up in a Buddhist house, and so when her grandma died, when her father died, there was a lot expected of her at the, at the funeral and things like that. Some of the things she did, some of them she didn't, and we really made it really obvious to them beforehand, talk to her mom, talk to her dad, talk to her brothers, her sister, who were all on board, didn't think anything of it. And, and we had to talk to them ahead of time and say, you know, we don't believe this. We don't believe that. But out of respect, we'll do some of the things because we want to honor you. And, but, you know, you need to know that this is where we stand. So I, I don't know if practically your friend is dealing with something like that, but but, you know, Mai had to do that with her family when we went through two different funerals that were Buddhist funerals. Yeah, and I do have to say, it, it, it surprises me, and um, it's what I want to look into further, that Elisha wouldn't say to him, no, that's a sin, don't do it. Uh, I don't know why he didn't say that, but uh, MacArthur's note is correct. He doesn't actually sanction the act. He just says, go in peace. So uh, he dismisses him, basically. Go in peace. Uh, it's like, don't bother me with, uh, with that kind of question. So why he would do that, I don't know, but probably some of you have sought counsel from me and felt like I was just about that dismissive, too. So, so I can't be too, too critical of Elisha, but I am going to look into it. So ask me that question uh, the next time we have a big Q&A in, uh, in Grace Life. Maybe I'll have a better answer. Is that Fanny over there? It is Fanny. Hey, Again, Fanny. you guys are right in front of the light, so I have only shapes. Okay, I have a two-parter. The first part is, uh-oh, I've waited so long, it's like, oh, dear. That's all right. Uh, okay. Oh, it's a coming back. Is it right, or is, I've heard people say, you can't die before your time, or is there such a thing as premature death? The second part of it is, um, Scripture says, it is appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So my question is, the 144-plus people that have died, did they meet their appointment or not? Yeah. Nobody dies without God's sovereign design, outside of God's sovereign design. He, nobody dies uh, before their time. We use that expression because from a human perspective, it's that way. When somebody dies young, we say he died before his time. We don't mean that, okay, the devil fooled God and took this one before God intended, uh, because that verse you quoted is exactly right. It is appointed unto man once to die. There's a time when you will die. God knows it. He, is not, he not only knows it, he has determined it, and you're not going to die outside of that time. But having said that... Don't uh, jump off a building. Huh? Don't jump off a building. Yeah, that's not... That's not uh, I mean, you look back and, and at Christ's temptations in the wilderness from Satan, one of the things Satan tempted him to do was jump off a building. Like, if it's not your time, the angels will bear you up. And 
Jesus' response to that is the same response I would give to anybody who says, I'm going to do this dangerous thing because I'm not going to die before my time. I'm going to play Russian roulette because I'm not going to die before my time. Uh, My answer would be the same as Jesus' answer to the devil. You are not supposed to put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, so, So we're forbidden to play with that knowledge that God has sovereignly ordained whatever comes to pass. But he's also sovereignly ordained that we should operate according to wisdom. And so we eat and practice, some of us practice healthy things to, to some of you practice healthy things to prolong your lifespan and all. Scripture's clear, you can't add one minute to your lifespan, but it's still a healthy thing to do and a good thing to do. And, uh, uh, it's also true that people who exercise and eat well tend to live longer than those of us who don't. And sometimes when, when people talk about premature death, you know, they, they mean that sort of uh, according to the way we speak about things. You know, he was young. He didn't live out the full number of years that a, a normal person, you know, lives out. Uh, it, was an, it was an accident, you know, the whole Kobe Bryant thing, right? He was 41 and had you know, all the rest of his retired life after basketball ahead of him and his, his daughter, even further still, who was 13, and they died in that helicopter crash along with others. You know, we would say that that was a premature death, not because uh, that somehow uh, predated God's determined plan for them, but just sort of the way that we speak among people phenomenologically uh, that it was earlier than we would have expected it to be. Uh, the same way we speak of sun rising in sun setting, even though the sun doesn't move, you know, just from our vantage point. So premature death is just sort of a way of talking about it. Yes. So in terms of the people, she's asking about the 140 plus thousand people, people, Americans who died from, uh, or with, at least with coronavirus. Um, You know, was it their time to die? Did God plan that from before the foundation of the world? Yeah. As much as he planned, you know, that, that a certain uh, child in the womb wouldn't, w- you know, wouldn't make it past uh, a certain amount of weeks gestation, which is a painful reality. And we have miscarriages and even abortions. You know, that's not outside of God's plan, as if he's somehow taken, taken uh, by surprise. But that he, you know, known, known are, are the Lord's works, you know, from, from of old, known to God are his works from of old. Uh, he he has, has done all, all these things uh, are working out in, in accordance to the counsel of his own will. So he says, I'll accomplish all my good pleasure, so nothing thwarts his purpose, Job 42. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I think, you know, isn't that the whole argument against even like open theology and things where God is not taken by surprise, you know? I mean, I think that's where the hope comes right, for us as believers, that none of this takes God by surprise. I'm always, I don't know if fascinated is the right word, it probably isn't, but when people talk about that whole idea of open theology and that, you know, I, I've heard one pastor say, you know, when somebody, when a, a husband left a wife and he said, well, don't worry, not even God saw that coming. You know, and I thought, well, that's horrible. That just gives you no hope. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the same thing, you know, with this COVID-19, a lot will try to say that same kind of thing. And so that's, yeah, mm. terrible. Not good. Next good. question. Next question. I cannot see. Christopher Wilson. Is it Christopher? Christopher. Hi. So I wanted to ask about 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 8 through 12. 
Do you want me to read it, or do you want to read it? Go ahead. Go ahead while I'm looking it up. Okay. So starting in verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I guess my basic question, since I'm fairly new to Grace Community Church and um, and cessationism and, and all that kind of teaching, what, what exactly is Paul talking about in this passage, especially um, talking about what we know in part and in full and knowledge and the perfect and the partial? When he says we know in part and uh, we prophesy in part, he's talking about the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy, that those are, the, those give us the partial insights. But one of these days when we're in heaven and glorified, we'll know as we are known. We'll we won't have any need for prophecy, and uh, we w- there won't be any lack of knowledge. So those gifts won't be needed as spiritual gifts in heaven. We'll all, we'll all know as we are known. Uh, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. And my interpretation of that text is that he's giving a principle that applies in every case, that when, when you have something that's partial and then... It's like a it's like a interim sort of makeup for something that you don't have yet, but then you get the thing that obviates this thing. The need for this partial thing is done away with. There's a there's been a, a long-standing argument over whether this applies to the gift of tongues or not. If the gift of tongues and prophecy and and uh, the revelatory gifts are partial, and the word of God is not partial in that sense. It's everything God expects us to have. Does the need for those things pass away? I don't think that's the argument Paul is making here, but I think it is a principle that nevertheless applies to the situation. I just wouldn't use this as a proof text for cessationism, although I think the principle it gives is valid. Uh, Some of the older writers, you go back to the 1950s and 60s, some of the cessationists went straight to that passage to prove cessationism. But charismatics have, have, charismatic uh, apologists have pointed out that if you read the passage in context, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, it's talking about the consummation of all things, when we are with the Lord, when he returns, the end of all things, when all things are perfected, then the need for all of these spiritual gifts except love will be gone. And so love is the greatest of all the gifts because it's the one that will still be operative in heaven, in the eternal state. I think that's the point Paul's making. I think it applies in an oblique way to the cessationism issue, but that's not a proof text that really seals the question for cessationists. Yeah, there's a a blog post that Pastor John wrote back in 2014 in the aftermath of the Strange Fire Conference uh, called Prophecy, the Perfect, and the End of What? 
uh, and it's and it's on uh, the Grace to You blog still, March twentieth, twenty fourteen, and he does a, a really good job of uh, answering the contemporary continuationist argument uh, for fallible prophecy that continues in, in, until Christ returns, and then demonstrating what in part means what it doesn't mean, what the perfect is, and when prophecies pass away. So the uh, prophecy, the perfect, and the end of what? If I tried to summarize that for you now, it would just it would just be too long. So just read the post. Good. Next question. Hi, uh, it's Alex. Hey, Alex. Um, I hope this question will be helpful. Um, so we say God is perfect in His essence and His attributes, and He cannot change. Nothing can be added or taken away from Him. And yet, I've heard it said. Uh, humanity was added to Christ in the incarnation. Uh, is that a correct way of saying that, or um, how are we to understand the addition of humanity to Christ or to God in the incarnation? Mike is our resident expert on that subject. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Christ. So, so Christ has a divine nature. He, he subsists in the single undivided divine essence with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity. When, when, what happens in the incarnation is he adds to his divine nature in, in that single person, he adds uh, the, the, a, a full and true human nature. That is not some sort of change in the divine nature. It's not a transmutation as if the divine essence now undergoes some sort of meshing or merging with humanity. It's that the, the subsistence, the person, not the essence, takes a second essence into, in union to his person. So we usually, we usually think of one person, one essence, right? One person, one nature. Well, with, with the Trinity, it's one nature and three persons. But then one of those three persons adds to that one nature in his person another nature. So it's not that the, the humanity ever mingles or meshes with the deity. That, that's what Chalcedon means when it says, you know, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures. Distinct but inseparable, without confusion, without change, without separation, and, and without uh, division, right? So without confusion is the idea that it's not... It's not uh, some sort of meshing of divinity and humanity so that he becomes some sort of third thing, right? Some sort of amalgam of God and man, but that there's divinity and there's humanity and they're united in the single person so that they're not divided, but they're, they're not meshed or, or confused either. There's a distinction without a separation. Uh, and so there's no change to the divine essence. There is an addition by the, the second person uh, of, a, of a human nature. Right, and no division means he doesn't become two persons either. Right. He's just one. I got nothing to add. <laughs> good. Well, I think uh, this is good. I don't think we have any more questions, and I think uh, we're kind of at our time anyway. So, uh, Did you have anything else on the uh, Lehman thing? Um, I didn't. Okay. I mean, those were most of the things I wanted uh, to ask. I don't know if you wanted to do any more on that. Um, I think, I think one question that's on a lot of people's mind, I'm certainly getting this a lot, is, okay, fine. So the government 
if, if we've made the biblical case that the government does not have the authority to command us to wear masks, to distance, and to limit uh, attendance caps, why don't, why don't we just decide to do that? Why isn't it the case that the elders, with the sovereignty that's afforded to them by God for their sphere of jurisdiction, why don't we decide to enforce uh, those guidelines of our own free volition? Yeah, my answer to that would be because, let's take the question of masks. That seems to be the most controversial thing. You post a picture of people at Grace Community Church and uh, on Twitter, for example, and you're going to get a flood of Twitter criticism from people who say, some of them saying, most of them saying, they're not wearing masks. The others saying, it's not a good enough racial mix. And it's, just, it's, it's the same kind of criticism. If, uh, w- w- the elders have pretty much decided to treat masks as a Romans 14 thing, you know, that uh, let everyone be fully convinced in his own heart. And the majority of people... Nobody dictated to those who, for example, went in the worship center the last four or five Sundays that they couldn't wear a mask. It's just that most people didn't. They've chosen to come to church. They've chosen not to wear masks. And it's not the elder's prerogative to make a rule about a disputable issue because Romans 14 clearly says you don't, you, you don't entertain those sorts of controversies or make those sorts of rules that go beyond Scripture. So it's up to everyone what they want to do. And those who want to wear masks, there's ample space out here and around the campus to practice the strictest kind of uh, social distancing and still come to Grace Church. And we don't want to bind the consciences of either side with an arbitrary rule. If you don't want to wear a mask to Grace, you don't have to. And the vast majority of people at Grace, at least the ones who, who sat in the worship center on Sunday... Uh, obviously, we're not bound by their consciences to wear masks or practice social distancing. Uh, personally, that warms my heart because I see the church as a family, and no more would I would I feel I need to put a mask and distance between me and my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ than would I feel that way about the other people in my own family. I don't make Darlene wear a mask when she's around me. She makes me wear one sometimes, but I'm kidding. She doesn't. But, um, but it's the same kind of principle. Uh, the, the way I said it today in a, in a message I put online, the stress in Scripture is on koinonia, which is a big word that means a lot more than we translate it as, usually as fellowship. But it speaks of intimacy and communion and and fellowship, and and uh, the and it it's, it's usually has to do with when the church gathers. And it seems to me that to make a rule that you have to put distance and a mask between you and your fellow Christians diminishes the whole idea of koinonia. The the biblical example of koinonia, or, or one of the expressions, is greet one another with a holy kiss. And while we don't kiss. Well, I kiss Darlene, and some of you kiss me, and I'm okay with that, as long as you don't do it on the lips. Um, the, but the point of that is to say that our, our fellowship with one another and our greetings with one another ought to be close and personal and involve even physical touch. It's why we can't have true koinonia, fellowship, 
uh, merely by meeting on Zoom. That's a great temporary uh, meeting place if we want to keep in touch, but it, it isn't a substitute for the fellowship we have in church. And, uh, and the elders decided, and, and I think nobody feels more strongly about this than John himself, that he doesn't want to, to make a rule that people who come to Grace Church have to come masked so that you can't see whether they're smiling, crying, or whatever. Now, obviously, we try not to cough on one another, too. But uh, and, and it's not it's not the worst thing in the world if you sort of curtail a little bit, like kind of feel somebody out. You know, if you go to kind of give a hug, wait, look and see if there's reciprocation uh, or if there's sort of like, oh, you know, some people might feel a little bit less comfortable with that. So just, just take that into consideration that some folks might want to be here but might also not want to be all up in your face, uh, just to, you know, you, you kind of have the courtesy that way. And by the way, that applies even after this whole pandemic is <laughs> yeah. over. Yeah, no, yeah. in fact, that's, that's <laughs> for those no, of us who don't hug. Yeah. Really, really no joke because I have heard people say, <laughs> I have heard people say, even in the secular world, that uh, the, the Western world might be all the way through with handshakes, that after this is all over, nobody will ever shake hands again. Uh, That's the sort of tragedy, uh, that's the flavor of tragedy that I want to uh, see us uh, escape as as a fellowship of believers. Let's not do that. We will not implement the right fist bump of fellowship. Right. And I'm okay with hugs. If if anybody wants to hug me, I need a hug every now and then. Don't look at me. (laughs) I don't think I've ever asked you for a I don't think you have. Nor have I given you one. Yes, we do have one more question. So it's been three days. Any word from the governor or the mayor? Have they responded at all? No, uh, I should mention that uh, Tucker Carlson called John this morning and wants him on his show this week. So uh, watch, watch online, and we'll, uh, when that happens, John, John says he's going to do it. Uh, so as soon as they've scheduled that, we'll put it online. You can watch that. Uh, but... I think, I think John is such a high-profile person, and he has personal experience, some of you know this, a face-to-face dispute that took place with the governor, with the guy who's now the governor, uh, several years ago on the Larry King Show. And uh, I don't think Governor Newsom particularly likes John MacArthur. So I'll be surprised if there's not some kind of effort to close us down or punish us, fine us, I don't know, the... The mayor, I put this online too, and it created a stir that I didn't intend, but months ago, the mayor threatened to uh, shut off power to any business or enterprise or church that doesn't, uh, that they consider non-essential if we don't close. So there's the possibility they'll do that too, but I think by law, they are required to give us notice in writing before they cut the power off. So don't, don't come fearing that that might happen unexpectedly. If it happens, we'll know about it beforehand. Uh, other than that, I don't know what they have the power to do. Uh, if they frog march John off in handcuffs, I don't think that's going to win the governor a whole lot of sympathy. So we'll see what happens. Yep. All right. Well, let me end in prayer, and we'll let you have a, a little bit of time still to talk and fellowship afterwards. So let's pray. Gracious God, thank you again for this night you've given us. Thank you for Mike and for Phil and, 
again, Lord, just the diligence that they've shown in in study and and knowing your word. And Lord, thank you for the leadership that they've shown us during this time. God, we continue to pray for them. We continue to pray for Pastor John, even as he has opportunities, even this week, it sounds like, to uh, continue to... um, not just talk about what we're doing here at church, but obviously being able to uh, proclaim the gospel like he always does when he has these opportunities. Father, give him wisdom. Give him the words to speak. Lord, be with our elders as they meet again this week to just uh, know how best to shepherd us, to lead us. And uh, Lord God, help us too just to come um, to a real assurance one way or another, even as we talked about tonight, that our conscience would lead us and uh, that we would prayerfully consider whether we come or not come. Um, But, Lord, we do thank you for the opportunities you've given us to come back and fellowship again tonight. Lord, I just pray again for our nation and just the fear that we see from so many. And, Lord, even thinking tonight about, you know, thinking of people thinking they're dying prematurely. But, Lord, we know that every day is numbered and that you know exactly uh, the day for each of us to die. And, Lord, we just pray those that don't know you would come to know you and that many would be saved even during this time of anxiety and stress and fear. And Lord God, we just ask that uh, you'd bless our fellowship and our conversations tonight. May they be pleasing to you in your name. Amen.